So part 15, so the first 13 parts, I'll, uh, I put the slides in, um, if you're on Hope Book, if you registered for the first class, first 13 parts all um, on Hope Book there, and these first two parts of this, uh, part, part two, what we're calling part two, um, continuation are on Hope Book if you're registered for this class as well. If you are not registered for the class or you don't have Hope Book and you'd like to get the slides, uh, please come see me, and I can arrange to get you the slide. Okay, so what are we going to study today? So this is preparation for the flood. So this is what the pre-flood world was like and what it was, uh, what the interaction between God and Noah leading up to the flood. We started that last time. We're going to continue the coming flood, the ark's passengers, Noah and his family's entry into the ark. We'll talk a little bit at the end about why is the flood important? What's the purpose of this flood story in the Bible? And does it really matter that the Bible's description of Noah's Ark is accurate, plausible, and believable? Uh, We'll talk about that and um, the implications. So first we'll do a review of what we did last time. So last time we did the first uh, part, uh, the first half of chapter 6, the preparation for the flood. And uh, generally, as an outline, we have the the world had become very wicked. And God decides to destroy all living things. However, we have this one man, Noah, who finds favor inside the Lord. And he commands this one man, Noah, to build a big boat to protect him and his family and some representative animals. And he gives some specific instructions about how this big boat is to be made. He tells Noah what kind of wood it's supposed to be made out of. He tells him he's supposed to put pitch, uh, kind of uh, tar-like water-sealing compound on both the outside and the inside. He says it's supposed to have rooms inside. It's supposed to have three decks. Uh, it's supposed to have a window at the top. He's, he gives the dimensions of it. It's supposed to be 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Um, a big ocean liner sized vessel. Um, and then we get this uh, little side note here, uh, this description of one of the things that's so wicked about the world uh, we had the discussion about the sons of God and the Nephilim. Um, I pointed out that uh, in this passage and in other passages where where we have this phrase in English, uh, sons of God, uh, the ancient Hebrews, when they translated that into Greek, they always translated angeloi, angels. Um, so the ancient Jewish understanding was what that, that, that phrase meant angels. And that's what it means here in Genesis 6 and in Job 1 and Job 2 and Daniel 3. Daniel 3 is the Aramaic cognate. It's in Daniel's, a lot of Daniel's in Aramaic. Um, And then we saw some New Testament passages that amplify uh, the passage in Jude that uh, talks about these, these, some subset of the fallen angels had done something so egregious that God locked him up all the way to the day of judgment. Um, And it's, it's described as something uh, it's compared to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, also in Second Peter chapter 2, the same thing is discussed. Uh, angels that are locked away uh, in pits of darkness all the way to the judgment. And it's specifically tied to the time of Noah. Whatever these angels did, they did it in the time of Noah. And it's once again compared to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and then we get we talked about this passage about when Jesus encountered demons in his time. So during his earthly ministry, 
The demons that he encountered were terrified that he was going to send them somewhere. Um, and so when we look at the whole um, uh, council of scripture, we see that it's most likely that those demons, they knew about the demons that had been done something strange during the time of Noah, had been locked away all the way to the day of judgment, and they're afraid that Jesus is going to send them there also. And they beg to be sent to the pigs instead, instead of being sent there. So to summarize, we have this subset of fallen angels or demons. They've done something so offensive to God, they've been locked away uh, in eternal darkness all the way to judgment day. Whatever they did was, was tied to the time of Noah in 2 Peter 4 and compared directly to the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in both Jude and 2 Peter. Um, so we also talked about the fact that um, there's sometimes, a, when you look at this passage, and say, well, it's talking about angels, and it's talking about marriage, and doesn't, isn't there a passage in the Bible that says angels don't get married? And there is a passage in the Bible that says angels in heaven don't get married, but obviously we're not talking about angels in heaven here. Uh, these are fallen angels that did not keep their own domain. Um, and then we talked about the fact of why would Satan do this? Why would Satan have his, uh, his demons do this? Well, Satan, from the, from the time that he heard about this prophecy of a seed of the woman that was going to bruise his head, he was out to disrupt that plan. And this is just one example of how he tried to disrupt that plan. Uh, Matthew 2 is probably the most famous one where he slaughtered every baby under two to try to thwart this plan. Uh, but that's, that's what Satan does. From the very beginning, that's what he's doing. He's trying to th- uh, thwart God's plan. It doesn't work, can't work, but he tries it nonetheless. So, uh, then, he, then he tells Noah that he's, uh, he's going to blot out humanity because of extreme wickedness. Um, and so we're going to get, we'll get to this when we get to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 9, but we're going to come off the ark with only eight people. And so it's essentially a reboot of mankind with eight people surviving. Uh, we talked about the fact that um, in Numbers chapter 13, you have the lying spies that gave the false report saying, hey, there's Nephilim in there. Um, and that's obviously them trying to dissuade the rest of Israel from going in by saying, hey, the boogeyman's in there. Don't go in there. Uh, and there's no uh, evidence whatsoever in the book of Joshua that they found any Nephilim when they went in there. Uh, so those Nephilim were killed in the flood. Only eight people survived. Uh, we have uh, ample evidence of that, testimony of that from um, the New Testament as well, that only eight people survived that flood. So all the Nephilim were killed. There were no Nephilim after the flood. Okay. Uh, And then why was the rest of creation killed just because man was wicked? Well, man was given dominion over creation in Genesis chapter 1, 128. And so God's judgment would fall on his creatures that that he had created that man had dominion over as well. Um, And it was a specific set of animals, the types that were described as nephesh hayah. Uh, the land-dwelling vertebrates, and we'll talk about that a little bit more today as well. Um, And the exception, of course, was Noah and his family. Um, He repeats once again at the end of this passage uh, for emphasis the judgment he has made and the reason for the judgment. So the judgment is the end of all flesh, I am about to destroy them. That's God's judgment. And then he gives the reason for the judgment. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, and therefore the earth is filled with violence. 
And so God shares his plan with Noah, the only righteous man, because God has work for Noah to do, which he begins to explain in verse 14. Um, so this Noah's Ark that he builds, um, he, this is, has been a favorite target of skeptics, uh, but the dimensions show that it was ideal for stability and easily able to hold all the representative land vertebrate animals. And so uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of the class, but I'll mention it one more time, that this book covers every objection I've ever heard and lots of objections I've never heard to Noah's Ark. And so if you have an objection to Noah's Ark or you know somebody with it, please get this book because John Woodmorphy has done all the work for you. <laughs> to, uh, to uh, debunk any possible problem that you might think about for Noah's Ark. He's really done a good job, uh, and John's a really good guy. Uh, yes, Doug? You said land vertebrates, but mm-hmm. invertebrates would have to be on a boat too, right? Mm. No, I'll get to that today. That's part of today's lesson. I'll, I'll talk about that. That land invertebrates are not included in that Hebrew phrase, living things, nefesh hayah. No, it's, it's land vertebrates, so not insects, not plants. So when we say in English, living things, that, does, that is not the same thing as that Hebrew phrase, nefesh hayah. The nefesh hayah did not include plants, for example. That didn't count as living things in that, that phrase in Hebrew. It doesn't include insects. But after a thunderstorm, I know worms don't survive wet. So, yeah, so how do the, how do the insects and the invertebrates survive? So um, there are different possible ways uh, that you can think about. The primary one, I think, is uh, imagine for a moment every single tree and every single plant on the entire face of the earth is suddenly uprooted and washed away. Where does it go? Do, uh, does wood sink or does it float? It floats. And so you would have had enormous, enormous floating mats of vegetation. You would have had to have had, because every single plant and every single tree was uprooted, and they float. And so there was lots of place for insects and invertebrates to be uh, on these floating mats. Yes. (laughs) Yep, exactly. So that's exactly what we saw in Mount St. Helens in 1980. You saw giant mats of floating logs. and that was just a little local uh, flood from Mount St. Helens. It also created a Grand Canyon. And, if, and in a later lesson, I'll show you that Grand Canyon. It created a Grand, Grand Canyon in one day from the, the, the runoff from Mount St. Helens. Uh, one day it created. It, it created the layers, the, the layers of sediment, and it created the canyon in, in one day. So some, some plants had started to sprout up because when we go through the, the sequence in... Um, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, you'll see the, whole, the flood is a year long. So it's, uh, it's kind of six months of, um, it, it's, it's six months of, of prevailing and six months of receding, essentially. Um, and as it recedes, it, it takes months and months and months for it to recede, but more and more land is being revealed as the flood recedes. And so if it takes six months for the whole thing to run off, then there are actually several months where some of the higher elevations would have been exposed. And so, and you have these floating mats of vegetation with seeds in them. Those seeds get planted. And by the time Noah sent out the dove, there could have been months gone by where there were seeds that were in 
you know, the sides of hills or whatever where the flood runoff had been a little bit earlier as it goes down by elevation, and you would have had plants starting to sprout up by then. So, yeah, so there, that's how you would have the dove in there. But yeah, that's a, 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 a lesson a little bit in the future still. But good question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the reason we can't say, we can say for certain that they did not is that the Bible tells us that every living thing died. The Bible positively says that. So it doesn't leave any room for a mistake in that area. It tells us only eight people survived. The New Testament tells us that. So no people could have survived. And it also tells us over and over again that, um, that the Nefesh Hayah all died. Uh, it says that over and over again. So no Nefesh Hayah could have survived on those. Well, yeah, because you, you had water covering the whole earth for a year. Uh, it's a year-long flood. Yeah. So, yeah, they got scoured off. And, and we'll talk about hydrodynamics a little bit. Um, uh, my, my original degree is in chemical engineering, and so I've studied hydrodynamics a little bit. And if you, if you, we can do a computer simulation about what would happen if we covered the whole Earth in water. Uh, based on the Earth's spin and the gravitational pull of the moon, you would get tremendous movement of that water. The water wouldn't just be sitting there. It would be moving there would be currents, like we have currents now because of the rotation of the earth and because of the tides, we have currents. And in fact, without the continents to break them up, the currents would be much stronger. And so during the flood, you would have had much stronger currents than we have today. And so it would have really scoured the earth, really scoured it, um, much more than we even get today, uh, movement of the water. Okay, um, so um, I studied naval architecture as well. So uh, I was in the Navy, uh, studied naval architecture, and if and naval professional naval architects have studied the dimensions of the arc, and it is absolutely ideal for stability, those dimensions. Uh, imagine that. Imagine God being able to figure out what the ideal dimensions would be for stability. So it turns out that God's pretty good at naval architecture as well. And that, uh, in fact, if you put these dimensions and you put them in a tank and test, uh, it, could, it could roll over to 60 degrees and come back, um, this arc. So it could survive. And, and it, would, it would need to survive pretty, pretty um, uh, heavy weather because, as I mentioned, if you study hydrodynamics, you would have had significant seas. Uh, the seas would not have been calm uh, if the whole globe was covered with water. Uh, you have tides and you have currents and you have no continents to block them. Um, so you get very significant tides and currents, very significant waves. Uh, but the ark was ideally constructed to survive such. Um, here's, a, here's a cutaway of what it could have looked like. We don't know, of course, exactly what it looks like, but the Bible tells us it had three decks. So we know it had three decks. It's 45 feet high, so each deck would have been about 15 feet high. So you see a little person here inside a 15-foot high deck. There's three of them, 45 feet divided by three, 15 feet, about 15 feet for each deck. Uh, it says that there was rooms in there. So each deck would have been divided into rooms because the Bible tells us there were rooms. Um, and so there were, this is a big ship. It's a big ocean liner with decks and rooms, and uh, so they would know it had to make pens for all the animals. He would have had to make uh, storage places for water and for food, uh, living spaces for the eight people on board, and so forth. So something like, like this. 
All right, and so that's a review of last week. So we're ready to start into something new now. Uh, so let's uh, let's take a look at the scriptures that we're gonna we're gonna cover. We're gonna cover from uh, six seventeen to seven five. So if you take out uh, a copy of the Bible or a device that you can look at the Bible on, uh, let's read through this scripture. So preparation for the flood. So this is God speaking here in seventeen. And he says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. So that's a very definitive statement that these things are not going to survive on floating log mats. Very definitive. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. So that's eight people. Noah, Noah's wife, his three sons, three sons' wives, eight. Eight people. And of every living thing, Nefesh Hayah, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And then continuing in chapter 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So, God says that he will destroy the world with a flood, and that everything that is on the earth shall perish. And then he tells Noah what to bring on board the ark, his family, he and his wife, his sons and their wives, eight people, seven of every clean animal, two of every unclean animal, seven of every bird, and enough food to feed his family and the animals while they're on the ark. And so that's an overview of what we're going to look at today. So, yes, go ahead, Doug. Uh, I don't remember this. Is there a practical reason that about for putting pitch on the inside of the boat. Mm-hmm. So, when you're doing, when you're going to seal, um, you're going to seal something, uh, a wooden boat. Um, you have water from the inside that can get in, and inevitably, somehow, some way, you do get some water on the inside, and you want to make sure that that water, once it's inside then it doesn't spread out and soak into other parts of the wood. And so you put pitch on the inside as well. So um, you get what we call bilge water eventually in, in the boat. And so the, the pitch helps with that. Okay, so um, these first few verses, Behold, I even I am going to destroy all flesh, um, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. So he makes clear that the flood is not an ordinary natural event, but an action taken by God to accomplish a specific person. I am bringing the flood water. Not there's going to be a flood. I am bringing the flood water. 
behold, I, even I, he's really emphatic about that here in this passage of Scripture, that this is an act of God, uh, to dis- and he's doing it on purpose, for, for a specific purpose, specifically to destroy all flesh. Uh, that purpose, to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on earth. So it's a, it's a, uh, he describes it in two different ways, for emphasis, everything with the breath of life, everything that is on earth. Um, and as we shall see in, when we study Genesis 7 and 8 particularly, that this very clear universal language that describes the flood is not used just once or twice. It's used over and over and over again where God emphasizes that everything dies, everything dies, everything dies. It's as if he wants to make sure that we're not in doubt about that. Uh, You'll see that as we go through Genesis 7 and Genesis 8. So uh, the Bible also uses a very specific word here for the flood. In Hebrew, it's mabul. Um, In the Septuagint, when it's translated into Greek, it's cataclysmos. We get the word cataclysm from that. It's a special word. It's not the ordinary Hebrew word for flood. It's, and it's different than the ordinary Greek word for flood. Uh, for example, in Nahum 1.8, there's a description of flood. It's the word shetef, uh, not mabul. Uh, in Psalm 95, it's zaram, not mabul, to describe a flood. There are other Hebrew words that describe ordinary floods. There's a special word to describe Noah's flood, not the ordinary word for flood. Um, and in Luke 6:48, we have the ordinary Greek word for flood, plemyra, uh, to describe an ordinary flood, uh, not cataclysmos, which is the Greek equivalent of mabul. Uh, so this is a special thing. It's not an ordinary flood, so the Bible does not use the ordinary words for flood for this thing. Um, Notice in verse 18 that God promises to make a covenant with Noah. I will make a covenant with you, he says. And we see that played out in Genesis 9. We'll get there uh, when Noah comes off the ark, God makes a covenant. He fulfills this promise that he's made to Noah before the flood. He fulfills it after the flood in Genesis chapter 9 by making a covenant, not just with Noah, though. He doesn't just make a covenant with Noah. Uh, When we get to 9, we'll study this in detail, but... Here's what uh, chapter 9 says. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons. So he's speaking directly to Noah and to the sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it's not just Noah, it's Noah and the sons saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and with your descendants, that's all of us, after you, and with and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. So this is a big covenant. Covenant with Noah, covenant with Noah's sons, covenant with all of the descendants of Noah's son, which is every person that walks the planet today, and with all the animals that came off the boat. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, uh, if, in fact, Noah's flood was a local flood, then God lied here. He lied, because he says he's never going to do that again. And if this was just a local flood, there, well, there have been many local floods, even really big ones since then. And so what God says here in Genesis 9 is clearly a lie if Noah's flood is just a local flood like every other flood. Uh, and God does not lie. So, yeah, so Mabul is used throughout these passages for this flood. 
And then a different Hebrew word is used for other floods that are described in the Bible. Um, so then he gives uh, detailed instructions about what animals are to be on board the ark. Uh, the first thing we notice is that it's not what we think of today as living things. And we had this discussion, um, uh, Doug asked this question, um, it's land-dwelling vertebrates. That's what nefesh hayah means. Um, and so think about what was not on the ark. So obviously there's no sea creatures on the ark. There doesn't need to be sea creatures on the ark. There's still the ocean there for them to be in. Uh, but neither will there be representatives of invertebrates, insects, and plants, none of which count as nefesh hayah, this Hebrew word nefesh hayah. It doesn't include things like plants and insects. Um, nefesh hayah means something else. It means things with the breath, breath of life. It means things with a circulatory system, essentially. Uh, the next thing to notice is that God tells Noah that the animals will come to you. Notice that. It's in the text. The animals will come to you. So Noah and his sons do not have to track down these animals and check to see if they get a male and a female. And Noah doesn't have to do that. God, God does that. God, God causes the, a male and a female of every one of these kinds of animals to come to Noah. And that's very clear in God's explanation here. So uh, you do get some silly stuff. Well, how would Noah be able to check all the, you know, did he get a, a, you know, a male mouse and a female mouse? How did he? No, he didn't have to do that. God did that. God caused the, a male and a female of all the animals to come to Noah. Uh, to of every kind will come to you. Very clear from the, from the scripture. Um, yeah, God did that for him. And also God reveals the purpose that he did this for to keep them alive. And so God cares about his creation. Um, and so if you ever wondered, is there any scripture that, uh, that would support the idea that God cares about animals? Here it is. He cares about animals. So he, um, he, he specifically made these animals come to Noah so they could be on the ark so he could keep them alive. And then at the end, he makes a covenant, not with just Noah and his sons, but all the animals that come off the ark too. So yes, God cares about animals right there in the scripture. Now, you have to be careful about that. Um, you know, God doesn't, uh, I don't think God is an animal rights activist, that he's putting animals on the same plane as humans, because that's not what the Bible describes. But God cares about his creation, including the animals. Okay, so, uh, and then as, as for you, bring the food. He tells him to bring in uh, the food. He instructs Noah to provision the ark with food for his family and all the animals. Now, this would have been a tremendous task um, to gather all the food for what turned out to be a year-long stay on that ark. We'll see. It's a year-long stay. 370 days he's on that ark, day for day, 370 days. Um, and that's a long time. That's a lot of food for yourself and for thousands of animals. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's a big task to get ready. Uh, fortunately, Noah and his son had ample warning. So they had a, a big bunch of warning years and years and years ahead of time to start to, to do this process, to gather and store away the necessary provisions, to build the ark and to store the provisions. And then finally in verse 22, we see Noah's complete obedience. And so uh, this phrase is repeated twice here in 22 and also in, uh, in chapter 7 as well that Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So Noah was obedient. Um, so uh, Hebrews 11.7, we see um, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, 
in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And so Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, Noah's one of the people listed as having faith, being saved by faith, just like uh, we discussed that uh, salvation has been by grace through faith from the very beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. And that's the point of Hebrews chapter 11, and Noah is one of those listed with faith. And how did he demonstrate that faith? He demonstrated that faith by obedience, by doing what God told him to do. That's the demonstration of his faith, the working out of his faith. Um, yeah, the, the, the works that, that sh- he did the works that showed that he had faith, um, as we see in James. That faith without works is dead. That if you have true saving faith, then you will have works in keeping with righteousness. And Noah did have works in keeping with righteousness. He obeyed what God said. Uh, and then continuing in chapter 7, we have um, the Lord saying to Noah, finally, um, in chapter 7, to enter the ark. So, there have been years that have passed since God first told Noah that he was going to flood the earth and he needed to make an ark. And now it's time to go in, to to actually go into the ark. And God says, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And once again, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So now that everything is prepared, God is ready to execute his judgment. And he commands Noah and his family to board the ark. And so um, he, he, God tells Noah that he has started this seven-day countdown. So you got seven days to get on the boat. Last minute, if you want to put anything last minute on the boat, you and your family get on the boat, seven-day countdown. And then it will start to rain. And it won't stop for almost six weeks. So 40 days, almost six weeks, it's going to rain. Um, So get on the boat. So he repeats once again, uh, so this is um, several times that he said this, that he's going to destroy every living thing that I've made. And that's Nefesh Hayah again. That's the things with the breath of life. He's going to destroy them all. Also notice the phrase that I have made. And so God is making clear that as creator, he has absolute authority to do as he wills with his creation. I made them, and so I have authority to destroy them. I and I alone have a story. No one else has that authority. And we've talked about this idea of authority, and it's very important in the conversation of worldviews. So we've, we've talked about the fact that this... Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation of a biblical worldview, how we see the world. And one of the most important ideas in Genesis 1 to 11 is that God is creator and he has authority over his creation. And that's where this has manifested itself in a number of different ways. We talked about it in connection to marriage, that God as creator had the authority to institute marriage, make rules for his creatures, us, men and women. And he did that in the case of marriage. He made a rule. And so as creator, he has that authority. And nobody else has the authority to override or override 
God's rule that he's made for his creation. And so uh, when he made marriage, he made marriage when there was only two people. There was no governments, there was no cultures, there was no societies, there was only two people. And God as creator made that rule. And so no government or society or culture has the authority to rewrite God's rule, to change God's rule. They're not our creator, right? The, the government didn't create you. The culture didn't create you. Society didn't create you. God created you, and he and he alone has authority to make rules like that. And so that's fundamental to a biblical worldview, uh, to how we see the world, that something like marriage is an issue of authority. And the authority that we see in Genesis 1-11 to is God as creator. Um, and so when we have discussions with those who are not believers and they ask why, they ask you why you don't believe in gay marriage, for example. Well, well this is the answer, that God has authority to make rules like that. And, you know, I don't have that authority. You don't have that authority. The government doesn't have anything. Only God has that authority. So that's why I don't believe in it. I don't believe that the government has the authority or the culture or the society has the authority to rewrite God's rules. And it's the same thing here with the flood. And so it might seem harsh that God's going to kill all these, you know, millions or billions of people and and things. And, and you know, from our perspective, that's quite harsh. We uh, And you get people like uh, uh, Richard Dawkins saying, you know, God is a homicidal, genocidal, uh, you know, horrible being uh, the God of the Old Testament um, because he doesn't understand. He can't see from the perspective of who has authority over the creation. And the fact that God as creator actually has authority over his creation to do as he wills, including to blot out, as God puts it here with this flood. So this is a very, um, it's a very harsh reality. Um, that God is going to blot out all these millions of people um, and all those animals as well. But uh, he points out here in this passage in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 7 that these, this is things that I have made. These are my things. I've made them. I have authority over them. Um, okay. Um, finally, in 7.5, we have a repeat of what God said in chapter 6, verse 22. Uh, which is to reiterate Noah's complete obedience. Um, here he puts it this way, all that the Lord had commanded him, Noah did. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So we have this obedience of Noah being put on display again, being emphasized again. Um, he's saved by grace through faith. And that faith manifests itself as obedience just like faith always manifests itself by obedience. Okay, Mabul, the flood. So why is the flood important? So why, why do we care about this flood, whether there was a flood? Why does it have to be written down in the Bible? Why is it important? Uh, so let's go to some New Testament passages that talk about the flood. And why, does, why, and why does the New Testament, why do these particular New Testament passages Uh, reference the flood what's the purpose for the reference to the flood in the new testament so second peter chapter three Um, so if you turn turn to second peter chapter three in the new testament um, verses three through seven say this 
Above all, you must understand that in the last days, so he's talking about the future, in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? So this is talking about the future, from Peter's perspective, scoffers saying, Jesus said he was coming again, but it doesn't look like he's coming again to me. He hasn't come and probably won't come. Uh, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, way back in the past, everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So what's that? He's talking about the creation. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. What's that? That's the flood. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What's that? He's talking about the second coming, the destruction of this world, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Um, And so Peter's covered a lot of ground here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. And for what purpose? Um, So he's saying that there is a day, from his standpoint, Peter's standpoint, when people in the future, uh, people would no longer think seriously of or even believe in Christ's second coming as a cataclysmic, universal intervention by God into the course of world affairs. So when you, when you read the book of Revelation, um, it's not a quiet and soft coming, the second coming. Um, it's not something that anybody's going to miss. Um, it, it's a worldwide global event, the second coming of Christ. Um, but Peter's saying, hey, people are going to miss that. They're going to they're gonna think that that's not coming. Um, And the reason for this haughty skeptical attitude is a blind adherence to the idea that things have always been and things will always be in accordance with the natural laws and processes that we've seen in the past and continue today and never having been interrupted by direct intervention of God in a total destruction of human civilization. But Peter points out that God did this once before. He intervened directly and destroyed all of civilization. It's right there in Genesis 6 through 8, uh, Peter is saying. He's done this before. And so the flood is supposed to act as a warning. That's what Peter's saying, that that we're we're supposed to be warned. Hey, God is a God of judgment. He's a God of mercy, yes, but he's also a God of judgment. He's just. He's a just judge, and we've seen him do that before, Peter's saying. And he did that in the flood. He wiped out millions of people and saved eight in the flood. And so, be warned, be ready, he's coming again, um, and he's coming to judge. He's come as judge before in the flood, he's coming as judge again, and be ready, be warned. Uh, Peter is saying, and so um, he he answers the scoffers, the Apostle Peter, by pointing out these two events in the past that cannot be explained as ordinary, basic 
things going on the way they are, uh, always have with natural processes. And those two things are the creation and the flood. God created everything out of nothing, not by a natural process. Everything out of nothing. And he also supernaturally destroyed the whole world with a flood. Those are the two things that Peter points out. And so what are the two things that Satan attacks the most today That from the Bible? I, I, I think there's a strong argument that Satan, uh, sometimes disguised as modern science, attacks two things, creation and the flood. Um, you know, the, the, whole, the whole edifice of evolution is a direct attack and a, and a direct, um, um, it's, a, it's a way of setting aside God's creation. Um, and so that, these are the two things that Peter says are the two things that, we, that, that are the warnings or um, the things that, are, that we should keep in mind that there's going to be a second coming, there's going to be a judgment, and these are the two very things that Satan attacks today the most. The creation and the flood, did those really happen? So when, he, when Satan confronts Eve, did God really say? Did he really say that if you eat that, you'll die? Well, now, in today's culture, did God really say that he created the whole world in six days by his word? Did God really say that he flooded the whole earth and destroyed the whole earth with a flood? Did God really say? So Satan is, once again, the way he has all the way from the garden, he's saying, did God really say? And he's saying, did God really say in a very sophisticated way that's, that's cloaked in the, in the disguise of modern science in, the, in, this, in terms of evolution and, um, and, and coming up with alternative explanations of what we see in the fossil record uh, to discount the flood? Uh, those two things. All right, so uh, why is the flood important? Also, we have this testimony of Jesus. Uh, during his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 24. So if you turn to Matthew 24, uh, Jesus mentions the flood as well. Uh, And he mentions it in connection with his second coming as well, just like Peter did. So uh, really, of course, Jesus came first and taught this first, and Peter heard him teach it. And Peter's really repeating what he heard Jesus teach. So what we just saw Peter teaching in 2 Peter is him imitating his master. Uh, Jesus. So I did them in reverse order, but really, of course, Jesus' teaching came first. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. What's he talking about? He's talking about his second coming. They've asked him about his second coming, and he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, be warned, I'm coming again. Nobody knows the day or hour, and it's going to be a surprise to people. But you have this warning in the flood. You've seen this before, Jesus is saying. Just like Peter said, and Peter's really repeating Jesus, um, we've seen this story before. We've seen this story in the flood. And so if Satan wants to lull people to sleep so that they're not ready, 
uh, so that they're not thinking about a second coming and a judgment, he will undermine the story of the flood. And so that's what Satan does. He undermines the story of the flood. But Jesus references the story of the flood as a, um, as a parallel or as a way of talking about his second coming, and Peter does too. So this is a, a consistent thing in the New Testament. All right, so what does it matter that the Bible's description of Noah's Ark is accurate, plausible, and believable? So uh, I don't know if you can see this picture. Here's a little bathtub ark here. Um, and so there's this, um, this idea that you got a bathtub ark with a giraffe's neck sticking out that's too big to fit on the ark, just one giraffe. Um, and so you get these, this kind of funny idea from childhood that Noah's Ark is a joke, um, that it's some little, little thing. Um, but if we read the actual description of the ark in, uh, in, the, in Genesis chapter 6, <coughs> Genesis chapter 6, excuse me, <coughs> It's the size of an ocean liner. Really big. And it wouldn't fit in the bathtub. <clears throat> and the draft's neck wouldn't stick out the top. So why is it important? Well, um, this is historical narrative, so it's talking about things that actually happened in space-time history. And as we've seen, it's important history to Jesus and his disciples. And it's important in one particular context, the context of the comparison to the second coming. And so that makes this an important story, and it's important that it's actually correct and accurate because if this is just a fairy tale, then what's the implication about Christ's second coming? Then, then what Jesus is comparing his second coming to is a fairy tale. Um, that's not good. We, we don't want to be there. <clears throat> so I've mentioned this book a couple times, and so I'll show you a little bit from this book. So this is uh, John Woodmorpy's uh, whoops, uh, Noah's Ark of Feasibility Study. And um, he's answered questions like, could the animals have fit in? Um, could eight people have cared for them? Uh, could they have brought enough food and stored enough food? Uh, yeah, he's done an engineering analysis of it. So this is part of the, uh, uh, the table of context of this book. Uh, floor space allotments for the animals. He does the square and cube. How many square feet, how many cubic feet would each animal have needed, and was there enough space? And he does the calculation. And, yeah, there's enough space for the animals. Quantities of water and provender. Uh, waste management, you'll see there. Waste man. He's got a whole chapter on waste management. Um, so, I mean, really, it, you, you wouldn't maybe not think of that right away, but that would have been a huge problem. Waste management for a year's worth of uh, all thousands of animals. Um, and so he comes up with a waste management system. Uh, vermin control, things like that, odor and hazardous gases. He does an analysis of that uh, from the waste management, all of it. Um, On-site disposal, uh, that sort of thing. Um, he, does, he, he has a whole chapter on construction of the ark. Can you make a wooden vessel that big? And yes, yes it is possible. Uh, there was actually a PBS special a number of years ago that said that it was impossible to build a wooden boat, boat that big. And... Um, the reason they said that is because it is impossible if you do a single-layer construction. If you do a single-layer construction, the thing will fall apart uh, out of any known wood that we have. Uh, but what if you made a triple-layer construction instead? And so it turns out that we have now found evidence of ancient Greeks building very large wooden vessels with triple-layer construction. So 
Not just one layer of wood, but three layers of wood for the entire structure. On the hull? On the hull. Three layers of wood. And uh, the way they constructed it is they put wooden pegs through the three layers, wooden pegs. And when those wooden pegs get wet, they swell and, and make it even tighter. So when you put it in the water, it gets, it gets even more watertight. Um, those, those planks swell together. Um, and so we have evidence of construction like that. Now, the, the PBS was looking back through the 1800s when they were building boats, and nobody built boats like that. And so why did nobody build boats like that in the 1800s? Well, there's two reasons. One is cost. It costs three times as much to make a triple-layer hull than a single-layer hull, and labor costs as well. So it made no sense in the 1800s to build a ship that way. But Noah didn't have to worry about labor costs, and he didn't have to worry about cost either, and he had 100 years to build the thing. Um, And all he had to do was make it so that it was seaworthy. Um, And so there's no reason for Noah not to make it a triple-layer construction. Of course, the description is not that specific in the Bible, but there is an engineering way to make a wood vessel that big. You have to make it triple-layer hull. Um, And so he talks about that in there. Um, He talks about the manpower. He does a manpower study, as I mentioned, for eight people to care for 16,000 animals for a year, feeding and watering, manure handling and disposal, allocation of the 80-man hour of daily labor. So assuming they worked for 10 hours, each eight of them each worked 10-hour days, that would be 80 man hours for a day. Um, So... um, he, and there's chapter after chapter after chapter like that. He's thought of everything that you could possibly think of um, about wh- whether this was possible or not. Yes, go ahead, Ron. Uh, you learned about the number of 16,000. Yeah, yeah, so there's, yeah, it, it, that's a good question. So um, how many animals were on the ark? So we don't know for sure. There were kinds, uh, not today's species, but uh, biblical kinds. Um, so what was a biblical kind? More like a family or a genera in today's parlance. Um, and so how many genera, for example, families and genera of land vertebrates are there? Uh, well, there are today about 16,000. Um, that's an upper limit because most likely there have been uh, diversification since the flood. Uh, we have examples um, today of things that we know interbreeded in the past and have now been geographically separated and now can't interbreed, for example. Um, There are cases like that. Um, So over time, things, if they're isolated, uh, become genetically separated. Um, But if you go back further in time, then there would be fewer genera and families. And so 16,000 is kind of an, an absolute upper limit. And so that's why he uses it. He uses this because it, he's an engineer, and so if you're going to design something, what do you use? You use the, the absolute extreme case. Can, could, I, could I engineer this for the absolute extreme case? And if I can engineer it for the absolute extreme case, then for the real case, it'll be fine. And so 16,000 is an, kind of an upper limit of those who have studied how many animals would have needed to be on the ark. And so, of course, we have to think of things like, of course, there were dinosaurs on the ark, right? Because the dinosaurs were created on day six, um, and so they would have had to be on the ark. So how would he have got dinosaurs onto the ark? Oh, my goodness, they're really big. Well, he does an analysis of dinosaur growth. Um, 
from what we know from dinosaur fossils. And dinosaurs, most of the larger species, had some sort of a growth spurt at the age of 10. They got much bigger starting at the age of 10. And so God is the one who decided which ones were going to come to Noah. And so it would make no sense for God to make the hugest brontosaur come to Noah to come onto the ark, right? First of all, it would be hard to fit. Second of all, it would be old when it got off the ark, and that's not what you want. And so if he made a a young pair of brontosaurs come, they would have been much smaller. Um, The average dinosaur size of the dinosaur species we know of is the size of a sheep. That's the average dinosaur size of the species that we know about the size of a sheep. So, yes, dinosaurs were on the ark, um, and they could fit on the ark. Yeah, um, yeah go ahead. The ark was 450 feet long, mm-hmm. and Noah had 120 years to do that. He would have to average only four feet a year. Yeah, so there was, yeah, there was plenty of time to build it. Yeah, so uh, that's one big advantage Noah had. He had some time to put this thing together. Um, yeah. So his sons were born when he was 500, flood starting when he was 600, and so his sons were around for 100 years before the flood started. Um, and so the sons could certainly help. He could have hired labor uh, as well. No reason he couldn't hire labor to help him with this thing. Uh, so, yeah, so this, is, this study, if you, if you have doubts, I would really encourage you to get this book, read this book, because he's really gone through, he's gone through everything I could think of and lots of things I couldn't think of. Um, oh, yes, go ahead. Okay, I'm just going to bring out the point that um, you know, God is orchestrating all this, and even if the, the humans couldn't perform it, or um, you know, God can perform a miracle, right? He can. The battle belongs to the Lord, not, not just. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's a good point. So yes, God could have performed miracles. Um, John did this study as if there were no miracles required. What could could the people have done it without direct miracles? And um, and John's uh, his conclusion is yeah, the people could have done it even without direct miracles. But of course, the animals coming to Noah. That's an example of a direct miracle. Uh, it would have been a much trickier task if Noah had to go out there and trap every single one of those animals. And, oh, by the way, make sure that he had a male and a female as he was trapping them. Uh, that would have been an enormous task. Uh, but God didn't make him do that. Yeah, go ahead. All the pictures that you show of the correct art mm-hmm. um, show these big wooden... Uh, on the front and the back. Yeah. So, what's yeah. What's, what's the so um, yeah, so that's, uh, those are seakeeping features. So if you were to design something like this today, a naval architect would put those on because that big sail makes it so that the boat will orient into the seas and waves. When the, when the, it's like a weather vane. So the weather vane... Um, the wind blows it, so it points right at the wind, right? Well, if you build a ship with that sail on it like a weather vane, it'll, it'll point. The wind will make it point into the wind and seas. And that makes it much more stable and much more pleasant ride. Um, and so 
that's just a speculation. There's no, there's nothing in the Bible that says that there's a, a weather vane doodad on there. Uh, but if I was going to design it, knowing what I know of naval architecture, I would put that on there. And so maybe they put it on there, maybe they didn't. But it would have been a much more pleasant ride with that doodad on there. Yeah. So the clean and unclean animals. So, um, you know, there's a speculation about why that would be. Uh, sacrifice is one. So if they were, so we know from Genesis chapter 4 that they were doing animal sacrifices all the way back to Cain and Abel. And so what if they were still supposed to be doing animal sacrifices while they were on the ark? They would have needed animals to sacrifice. And those would have been the clean animals to sacrifice for those that, that purpose. Um, it, it, you know, the, in Genesis chapter 1, they were told they were only allowed to eat plants. We'll see in Genesis chapter 9 that he tells them they're allowed to eat animals after they come off the ark. But those, the animals they're allowed to eat are only the clean animals. And so if they were going to eat animals after they came off the ark they would need a supply of clean animals. And so God was ready for that, made them bring seven of the clean animals so that after they came off the ark, they would have extra of those clean animals that they were going to eat. So those are the two speculations that I have about why seven of those and only two of the unclean animals. Good question. Yeah, Ravi. Does this book also going to answer the question that at, that at the time of Noah, people were good mechanical engineers, like they knew things. Um, considering Noah's art, that it was just enormous boat, there was nothing else of that kind there, because there must be other boats that were people were using. Yeah, so, yeah, so that's a good question. Um, that's a good point, that they lived to be 900 years old. That's a, that's a long time to acquire skills in a lifetime. And so um, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty good uh, guess that they were skilled in many different areas after acquiring these skills over a 900-year lifetime. Um, and so there's no reason to think of Noah and his generation as being ignorant, backwards, Stone Age people that couldn't do anything. Um, that they would have had skills in carpentry, for example. Um, and they could have had skills in mechanical engineering and, and things like that. And there were oceans from the very beginning. God said he created oceans. And so they probably were building boats. Yes, they were probably, uh, there were, out there somewhere, there were skilled people at, con at constructing boats. And so I mentioned before that there's no reason why Noah, even if he wasn't a particular expert at building boats, couldn't have hired people that were expert boat builders to help him construct this thing. Yeah. Yes? I think this is one of those lies from Satan, too, because we're trained via science to believe that the earlier people were stupid. Whereas we know that yeah. deterioration is what's really happening. So those people were probably immensely more intelligent than we are now. Yeah, so there, there, I have read many speculations along those lines that, um, that people before the flood were super intelligent, uh, much more intelligent than we, and may have had very advanced technology. Um, I, I have read speculation that they had, like, computers and stuff. Uh, 
but we there's no and we have no no way of knowing uh, exactly what technology they had. Um, but yes, it, it is um, it is an easy thing to slip into that we're smarter than the generation before us, and so therefore, if you go far enough back, they must have been really dumb. Um, you know that that you get that kind of recency bias. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Daniel. I guess I really appreciate Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. Yep. The matter was no obedience and yep. following in righteousness and in faith yep. in the Lord. Yep. So every thought he had or whatnot, he could have made a wrong step, and then with the amount of time he had, the Lord corrected him to a good step. Yep. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so it's an excellent point that Daniel makes, is that we know the result. Uh, the Bible makes really clear the result was that eight people survived, that whatever they did worked that they were able to survive a year they were, the boat didn't sink they were they didn't starve to death um, the Noah the eight people came off the ark and the animals came off the ark alive in Genesis chapter 9 so what, whatever speculations we make we know what the what happened what what, what the uh, the bottom line result was yeah the, the ark worked that's a good point. Uh, yes. So, yeah, so the, the, the purpose of the book is to, um, is to show that you can't just, that an unbeliever can't just dismiss Noah's Ark as some sort of fantasy because there's no possible way it was it just so ridiculous and silly that you could build a big boat and put animals on it. That's why he wrote the book. And I think that's, there's, a, there's room for that. Um, and I think Daniel's point is valid as well, that, um, that the most important thing is that God designed this plan, and this plan included a big boat with eight people and all the animals, and it, God's plan came to fruition and it worked. Um, now, that that may not be the place to start with your unbelieving neighbor. The place to start with your unbelieving neighbor may be well, have you considered that it really was plausible that you could build a big boat? And so when, when I do apologetics, uh, when I'm um, doing apologetics with uh, unbelievers, um, the tactic I take, the primary tactic I take, the thing that I've got in my mind is my, my goal is to put a rock in his shoe. My goal is not to argue him into the kingdom. It's to put a rock in his shoe, to bother him, to... to, to, to to, to disturb his thinking. Uh, and this puts a rock in their shoe. The people that, are, that tend to be skeptical, it puts a rock in their shoe. So that's my goal, put a rock in their shoe. Uh, John wants to put a rock in the shoe of somebody who wants to just dismiss Noah's Ark uh, out of hand. Uh, but um, when it comes down to this idea of, of who's in charge and who is sovereign over all the events of history... The answer is God is sovereign all the, over all the events of history, and the description of the things in Genesis 6 through 9 are things that God did in real space-time history, and he was in charge, and things played out as God said they would play out because he's sovereign over his whole creation. Yeah, go ahead. What do we know from the fossil record that supports the story of Christians? So that's next week. The whole, the whole lesson next week is going to be evidence for the flood. 
So we're gonna we're gonna pause in the narrative here in the boat in the and I'm gonna go through from geology and from science all the evidences that we have that there was a big flood. I'm gonna do that next week. What uh, one, one more? We're almost out of time. Go ahead, Morgan. So I hope next week we can talk about something that's curious for me. Do you think? There were big atmospheric changes as the flood began to arrive. Were these additional warnings, storm clouds gathering? So we'll talk about where did the water come from and where did it go. Uh, we'll talk about the idea that all the water came out of the atmosphere. That can't be so. Um, if you put that much water into the atmosphere, the water that would have been necessary to cover the whole Earth, then the planet would cook. The surface temperature would be like seven, eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit if you put all that water in the atmosphere. So it didn't all come from the atmosphere. And the Bible tells us that some of it came from the fountains of the Great Deep. And probably a great majority of it came from the fountains of the Great Deep. We'll talk about that. But did people see clouds gathering? Um, so unclear. The, no description in there of whether there was clouds, whether, whether the atmosphere looked different. Um, there may be some implications of if there was additional water vapor in the atmosphere, uh, not enough to cover the whole earth, but uh, that it would have uh, provided a, some, some <coughs> level of protection from solar radiation um, that's not there now if there's less water vapor in the atmosphere than there was then. Um, we'll, we'll talk about all of those things, actually, as we go along. All right, uh, it, we've run out of time. Uh, I'll, I can talk to you afterwards. Let me close this with prayer.